purpose. It can take the things of a broken life, the things that we look back on and say, I wish I hadn't experienced them, or I wish I could just forget them, and God can redeem them and use them for his purpose and for his glory. That's the wonder of God's grace and forgiveness, isn't it? That God can take the most broken vessel and turn it into a vessel for his use, for his purpose. Certainly that's what Jonathan experienced, and as we come to Acts chapter 22, that's what we're going to see Paul begin to experience as well. There were things about Paul's past that he looked at and he said, it's garbage to me. Like he said in Philippians chapter 3, I I consider those things to be refuse. even used a stronger word, I consider them to be dung in comparison to knowing Christ. But yet, God took some of these things and used them for his purpose and his plan. And that's what we want to see this morning. We want to see that, first of all, the plan of God will always succeed. And what God does to move us in the direction of his purpose and his plan is nothing short of amazing. When we look at the life of Paul again and again and again, we've seen protection come from Paul because God had a purpose for Paul that was unfolding. God's purpose for Paul was shared right at the beginning of his life with Christ. Right after the road to Damascus, Ananias, a man who was a part of the early church, said this to Paul, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And I will show how much he must suffer for my name. What we're going to find in these closing chapters of the book of Acts, almost one quarter of the book of Acts, is dedicated to this verse, to seeing Paul carry the name of Christ first before the Jews and their leadership, the Sanhedrin, and then ultimately to Rome itself before rulers that he could have never interacted with apart from the work of God. And we're going to see how God takes all of these pieces and these parts and he weaves it together to accomplish his purpose and his will. But let me say this to you. Rather than just looking at this as a history lesson and saying, oh my, look at what happened to Paul, I want you to think about how God might do that with your life. There are things in your life that you look at, and some of those things you might even be ashamed of about your past. Some of those things you might look at and say, how could God ever take this and use it for his purpose, for his glory? And yet, God will take you and use you in ways that you can't begin to understand, just as he does Paul as we look into these texts. When God has work for us to do, When God has a purpose and plan for our lives, and I believe that each life here has that purpose and plan by God, God sees that plan through. We can count on the strength of God to transform us, to change us, to make us into people useful for him. 
And God will take some very unlikely ways of doing it. You know, I've found in my own life, as I look at how God has worked in my life, and I've thought, this can't be used of God. This isn't something that God could ever in some way use in my life. And then lo and behold, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, that experience that I had, painful in the moment, difficult when it's happening, turns out to be just the word that someone needs to hear to be ministered to. And God brings those people into our lives and he allows us to share with passion and with power and God uses even the most painful situations in our life for his plan, for his purpose. Look at what happens with Paul. As we saw at the beginning of the 22nd chapter, the Apostle Paul was on the temple grounds. He was there to honor what was asked of him by the leadership of the church at Jerusalem. He went with some men into the temple area and he did it to make peace because there was the accusation that Paul had it in for the Jews, which is ironic because he himself was a Jew and had been in the leadership of Judaism as a Pharisee. He was accused of defiling the temple area, area which, by the way, was a false accusation. And so what happened? There started a, a, a riot. It was such a bad riot that the Roman soldiers had to step in and stop it, which ultimately saved Paul's life. And then remember what happened. As Paul is being escorted from the temple area to the barracks where there's safety, where there's protection, Paul stopped for a moment. And he said, may I address the crowd? Remember what happened? gave them one more chance to hear the gospel. He shared the gospel with passion and with truth. And when he got to the part about the resurrected Jesus, the crowd went nuts. They wanted to kill him on the spot. They wanted to see him brought to their idea of justice. And that's where we left off at verse 22 when it says the crowd... Listen to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. In other words, kill him. Kind of reminds us of what they had said about Jesus. Crucify him. So here is God's messenger rejected by the crowd. But then the description of what goes on continues by Luke as we look in this text. So look at verse 23. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken to the barracks. Now do you catch the scene here? These people are so incensed by what Paul shares in the way of the gospel that they dramatically show their protest and this is just literally people in mass throwing a fit. They're throwing off their cloaks, which in Eastern mindset would mean they're getting ready to pick up stones and stone Paul. That would be the imagery of what they're doing. They're preparing to drag him outside the temple area and bludgeon him to death with stones. Because the Roman 
Guards were there. They couldn't pull that off. So what did they do? They reached down on the ground and they pick up dust and they start throwing it into the air. So can you picture the noise, the dust in the air, cloaks being thrown all over the place? This is a dangerous event and so much so that all of the Roman guards who were there to escort Paul out of the area decide that they need to intervene. And so here is the commander, and he's ordering Paul to be taken into the barracks. Now, think about what it would be like to go into the prison area of a Roman barracks. I don't know if any of you have ever visited prisons in the modern day, but they would be a five-star hotel compared to the dungeons that people had to endure in the first century. It was literally a hole in the ground with no light, dank, the smell of prisoners' waste and sweat, shrieks perhaps from some who are imprisoned there. It's a dark place. It's a frightening place. And this is where they are taking Paul and hanging over him is the prospect of being flogged. Now sometimes when we read our Bibles, we look at these stories and we just say, oh boy, Paul's going to be flogged. My, my. Understand this. People did not survive flogging often. There was a piece of wood with multiple leather straps attached to the piece of wood. Sewn on to the ends of the straps were pieces of metal or bone or anything else that could tear the flesh. Jesus endured this flogging when he went to the cross. And now, here is this Roman commander saying that the same should happen with Paul. Those who would flog the prisoner were trained in it. They knew how to take the whip and rake it across the back to cause optimum damage. And Paul knew full well what a flogging was. And he understood that this was hanging over him. Perhaps the Roman commander was doing this because... He saw it as a way of appeasing those who were so upset with Paul. We flog him, perhaps that'll settle them down. As they watch him being beaten, as they hear his groans of pain, that will make them feel vindicated, and that'll be the end of it. But there was something else that flogging would do. Flogging was also something that they would do to question, to interrogate a prisoner. So here is Paul facing this, and the 24th verse says he directed he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. So then look at verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Now, understand this. The centurion 
And perhaps even Paul at that point knew that a flogging was going to take place. As they were stretching Paul across the post and tying his arms so that he would receive the lashes. And by the way, very often, the prisoner who was flogged was stripped. It was meant to bring about shame and also pain. So here is Paul, probably stripped, laying out over this post that was stained by the blood of others who had been flogged in the past. And this brute of a Roman centurion or soldier is standing behind him with the flog in his hand, probably whipping it around, making noises. And then Paul takes something and says something that changes everything. He asked them whether it was legal to flog a Roman citizen. Now, I want you to think about this citizenship that Paul had. Paul was a Roman citizen because his parents had somehow become Roman citizens. Throughout his youth as a Pharisee, he probably hated the idea that he was a citizen of Rome. See, to many of the Jews, those who had become Roman citizens were sellouts. So probably throughout his youth, Paul looked at his citizenship as a detriment. He probably was disappointed in his parents for taking that on and then by virtue of him being born into a citizen's home, he is a naturalized citizen of Rome. And he probably wondered, how is this going to help me? Well, it's already helped him once in the book of Acts in chapter 16 when he went to the Philippian jailer. So now he revisits that. And he shares with those who were about to beat him that he is a Roman citizen who hadn't been found guilty. And then look at verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. Now, understand this. In Roman law, you don't flog a citizen without a trial. That would be like, in our system, someone going and experiencing the beatings and the incarceration and the full extent of the law without a trial. Rome was very serious about protecting its citizens. So what the centurion was about to do would have meant consequences for him. Full aware of that, he decided to stop in his tracks and go and talk to his commanding officer. And so when the commander heard it, he goes and he talks to Paul. Look at verse 26, or 27. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. And those who were about to question him, i.e., flog him, withdrew immediately. I don't want any part of this. If this guy's a Roman citizen and he gets a finger laid on him, we're all in trouble. So they back off then, what do we find? The next day, since the commander went to find exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, 
he released him and ordered the chief priests and the Sanhedrin to assemble. So here is Paul, this Roman citizen, facing things that no Roman citizen legally should have faced. And what do we find? God took something from Paul's past that perhaps he was ashamed of, that perhaps as a youth he would look at and say, why did you become citizens? I have all of the other Jewish friends around me telling me that we've done a horrible thing. Why did you do this? And lo and behold, years later, God uses it to deliver him. There's something even more than that at play here. You see, because Paul was a Roman citizen, it also meant that there would be a trial. And the trial would initially be with Sanhedrin, but there would be no satisfaction there. So as a Roman citizen, Paul would have to go before Roman leaders. And he would have to give an account of what he was doing, why he was doing it, and so doing, guess what he got to do? Share the gospel. By virtue of him being a Roman citizen, God took something that he experienced prior to his conversion and used it for his glory. And I think that's significant. A lot of times we look at our lives and we say, those things that happened before my conversion are of no use. I want to forget them. I want to move on. I don't want them to be a part of my thinking or remembrance. Nothing from there can ever be used of God. And if we think that, we're wrong. God can take the experiences that have shaped and molded our lives, redeem them, and use them for his purpose. Things that we might even look at and think that's insignificant, God can still take and use in some way when he redeems us. I find that comforting. I find that amazing. I find that a tremendous part of God's grace. That even those things he can take and he can use. And that brings us to our next point. As we come to the 23rd chapter, after we find Paul being released to the Sanhedrin, we find Paul appearing before them. And we find that, again, his pre-conversion past prepares him for God's plan. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and he said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and in all good conscience to this day. So here he is before the Sanhedrin. And understand who the Sanhedrin was. The Sanhedrin was a body of leaders, spiritual leaders, over Israel. What they said was basically law. It was comprised of two sects. There were the Pharisees who believed in the supernatural and who sought to follow the law under bondage because they had taken the core of what God had as law and added their own law to it as if God's law wasn't enough. Then, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the Sadducees. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in much that was supernatural. As a matter of fact, the way I remember the difference 
The Sadducees didn't believe in anything supernatural which made them very Sadducee. That's the way you remember it. Good way to store it away in my twisted brain. So maybe it'll help you. But here we find Paul coming before this body to give an account. And look at the boldness that God gives him as he speaks to this group. Verse 1 of chapter 23. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and all good conscience to this day. In other words, what Paul is saying to them is this. You are a ruling body, but I have a higher authority that I speak to. That is God. God has sent me on my mission. He has directed me what to do. I answer to him. And I think that the Pharisees caught wind of this. Because he's talking about doing this with a good conscience, look at the response in verse 2. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now, understand this. This is not the same Ananias that we saw earlier in the book of Acts at Paul's conversion. They have the same name, but they are radically different people. The Ananias mentioned earlier in Acts chapter 9 was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This Ananias was a puppet high priest. One of the Herods put him into place at the behest of the Roman government. He was more or less a puppet high priest. And this is the man that Paul has to go before. So what is Ananias' response? To strike Paul on his mouth. Now, when you read some of the sources even outside the scripture that describe Ananias, he's described as a harsh man. He's described as extremely arrogant. And so here is this man that Paul has to go before to be questioned as to his spirituality. And I think as Paul considered that, he was repulsed. These are the people who have persecuted other believers. These are the people who are trying to squash the presentation of the gospel to cause people to forget all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is this man commanding that Paul be struck across the mouth. And then look at the third verse. Paul isn't backing down. Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall." Now, we hear this and we think, oh yeah, great insult, whitewashed wall. You know, I go and try that on one of my buddies and they'll just look at me like, what? But you have to understand that when Paul is saying this, it harkens back to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. That they are white and clean on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. What he was saying to them is, you have an external religion. And that's all it is. There's nothing inside you. There's no spiritual life. You have all of the trappings, and if you consider who he's before, he's there in the Sanhedrin. He's probably sat down right in the middle, and they're encircling him, and they have all of these fancy robes, all of the accoutrements of power decked out in all of their religious garment. The high priest would have had very specific garment, easily identifiable. 
But then look at what happens. After Paul says, you sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding me to be struck. Verse 4, those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest. They were calling him on the carpet for being disrespectful. And granted, the man deserved no respect whatsoever. And yet, look at Paul's response. Verse 5. Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. While Paul would have been justified in identifying the high priest with everything that he said, he recognized that he had a duty to be respectful, not because of the person, but certainly because of the position. And you know, as believers, we're going to find that in our lives. We're going to be situations where, in situations where perhaps a boss is not worthy of our respect. They're corrupt. They are abusive. And everything in us wants to give them a piece of our mind that we can ill afford to lose. Everything in us. But we must respect the position, if not the person. We will find that in our government. There are people that we disrespect because of corruption. And we would want to be justified in saying that we can speak ill of them because of their political positions. But we must respect the position, if not the person. That's what God's people do. And Paul recognized this. Now, why didn't Paul recognize the high priest as the high priest? Understand this. We see in several of the books of the Bible that Paul had difficulty with his vision. The book of Galatians, right at the end, he says, see with what large letters I write. I write this with my own hand. He had vision problems. So when he heard a voice that said, strike him in the mouth, perhaps Paul didn't even see who had given the command. But once he recognized his position, Paul changed the way he addressed them. But then we come to the sixth verse. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees, and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, Brother, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now, pause there for a moment. Paul is throwing out a stake for the two sects to go after and fight over. And he knew it. Again, this is where his past comes into play. Paul, as a Pharisee, had seen raging debates take place between the Pharisees and the Sadducees over the resurrection. So he knew when he threw that out there that bedlam would ensue, and that's exactly what took place. God took Paul's past and used it as a part of his purpose, as a part of his plan to see that Paul would continue through the process of going from Jerusalem to Rome, where he would share the gospel with kings and leaders. God is amazing the way he works these things through. 
So here are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and look at verse 9. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? Okay, now it's really on. You see, as we see pointed out in verse 8, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in an angel. They didn't believe in spirits. Pharisees believed in all of these So they bring the debate from a discussion about resurrection to a discussion about resurrection, angels, and spirits. And they become so distracted by their argument with one another that Paul's kind of left on the sidelines. And apparently, the debate leads to an uproar. Verse 9, there was such a great uproar that some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and vigorously said, we find nothing wrong with this man. And then verse 10, the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And so he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back to the barracks. Now, when we look at this, we see that Paul is being used of God to again carry forth the gospel. You see, since the Sanhedrin wasn't able to resolve anything, it would go to the next level. And the next level would be a march, a steady march toward Rome, where Paul would eventually share the gospel even with the emperor of Rome. Amazing when we see how God fulfills his word. And that brings us to the 11th verse. In verse 11, we find that Paul goes back to the barracks, and there he is in the barracks, incarcerated in this hole, in this dungeon. Imagine what was going through Paul's mind. I know that God has a plan that's unfolding, but I'm looking at the walls around me, I'm smelling the smells around me. I'm hearing the ranting of the people outside who want to tear me to pieces. I'm considering that maybe those Roman guards up there are going to go ahead and do what they want to do anyway, even if I am a citizen. Things are bad now, but they're going to get worse. You know, when you're in those dark times, And you know that the purpose of God is unfolding according to his will. You still need the presence of the Lord to get you through that. And that's what we find in verse 11. The following night, I love this, the Lord stood near Paul. You catch that? In the barracks, in the darkness, there is physical discomfort. There is emotional fear. And I would submit to you that there is a spiritual warfare that's raging as well. As Satan and his demons buffet Paul, speaking in his ear, 
words of fear. Where's your God now? How could he let this happen to a choice servant? All of those questions raging as Paul faces this. A little over a week ago, my wife got the diagnosis of cancer. And I'll tell you, that rocked me. I stayed home the whole day and agonized in spiritual battle. I prayed. I sobbed. I asked God for help. The presence of the Lord was there. Many of you have walked that same path. In the loss of a loved one, in the fear of the loss of a job, the fear of a report where you've had a biopsy or a test, that uncertain future that hangs over your head, you need the presence of the Lord. And as I thought about that and as I prayed about that, I thought of verses that speak of the presence of the Lord, and I found comfort. In the Great Commission, Jesus said to his apostles, surely I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Normally, we think of the first part of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the commands. But it's that next verse that I find comforting in this moment. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said this in the book of Hebrews. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Presence of the Lord. Presence of the Lord also means that he understands what we're facing. As Paul is there in that dungeon, Jesus experienced that on his way to the cross. The writer of Hebrews reminds us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I would submit to you that Paul was doing that very thing as he was experiencing the presence of the Lord. No matter what your trial, no matter what your difficulty, as a child of God, you have the presence of the Lord. He stands by you. He comforts you. He is within you. Because through the Spirit of God, he indwells you. What a blessing to know that we have the presence of the Lord. So here is Paul, in verse 11, experiencing that very thing. But then we also find this, as the purpose of the Lord was unfolding in his life, the prophecy that he had been given was being fulfilled. Remember what God told Ananias right at the beginning of the sermon? 
You will go before Jews, you will go before Gentiles, you will go before kings. This was prophecy. And this prophecy was being fulfilled. Look at what the Lord says to Paul there in that 11th verse. Take courage. As you have been testifying about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul needed courage. And the Lord Jesus Christ is there. And I don't know whether he was sharing it audibly. You get the impression from Luke that he was. But he was telling Paul to take courage. What does it mean to take courage? To take courage means that we become bold and confident. The Greek word that is translated courage here has that sense. But that boldness is in a reliance on someone or something other than ourselves. That's what Paul experienced. See, if I go up to somebody and just say, toughen up, be strong, be courageous, those are hollow words. But if I go to them and say, be strong in the Lord, that resource outside themselves, those words have power. This is the Lord himself saying, take courage. And what he's calling Paul to do is to depend on him. And that's where we find our courage. As we face life's challenges, as we face an uncertain future. Take courage. God has a plan that is unfolding. Now Paul knew the plan. He would go from Jerusalem and testify in Rome. It's reaffirmed multiple times in Paul's journey. Sometimes we don't know where God's plan is taking us, what the future holds, we have the same God who stands beside us and encourages us and gives us the courage to continue. Let me encourage you this morning. Lay hold of the presence of the Lord. If you're walking through your dungeon this morning, waiting in the darkness to see what God would have you do, in the presence of the Lord, take courage. As you have a rocky marriage, and you wonder if it's going to survive, if it's going to make it, and you're both working to try and work through that, take courage. You have the presence of the Lord. Things are uncertain at work, and you're wondering, am I going to remain employed? They're making cuts and I may be one of them, or I have been one of them, and I've got to find work, have a family to provide for, take courage. You have the presence of the Lord with you. This has become so real to me this week in what I've experienced, and I'm thankful that God was there, his presence to allow me to take courage. God is so wonderful, such a blessing, such a source of strength. 
It's during the times of uncertainty and darkness that we see him shine through. So I encourage you this morning, embrace that presence. Draw from his resources. Take courage and go toward the plan of God for your life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this text.